Hey, this is Chris, and thanks for listening to the China On Podcast. We want to hear from you, so we implemented a system, and it's called Pod Inbox. So if you want to leave us a message, give us some feedback, or interact with us directly, go to www.podinbox.com slash chinon. All right, dude. Well, you ready? Yeah, let's do it. All right. Hell yeah, man. Well, thanks for joining me. Uh, thank you, everybody, for tuning in. This is China on Podcast. I'm here with Corey Bray from Closed Loop, the founder of Closed Loop. Um, so thanks for joining me, man. Hey, Chris. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's uh, it's good to talk to you again. I know we we had a bunch of conversations when I was a customer of yours at the last business I was at, but uh. It's nice to talk to you outside of that. And uh, I kind of want to dive into some of the things that you did to get this business off the ground. Um, but if you don't mind, if you could tell everybody what Clo- Closed Loop is, um, yeah, and just a little bit about yourself, and then let's just dive in. Yeah, sounds great. So Closed Loop is a sales consulting training enablement and talent agency that works with growing B2B sales organizations to help them achieve their goals and fix the follies that they might have come across in their past. So that's that's the idea. And then we publish books too, because mm-hmm. we'll, we'll get into this with the origins, but I'm not going to charge you 30 grand for some words on paper, like some people traditionally have. So let's open source this thing. Give you a whirl. You want to try it yourself? Go for it. You want to yeah, work I with like us? That. Then that's cool too. Your choice. I checked that out in your uh, your bio. I like that it says, uh, why pay me $100,000 when you could spend less than $100 to learn what I could tell you in that time? Correct. Some people do it on their own. They do it great. I've had several people come to me and they say, look, we just bought your books. We, re- we ran it internally. If you had the bandwidth and expertise internally, do it. Roll with it. And if you're okay with it being the first or second time you've done it ever, that's cool. If you want somebody that's done it 100 times and have a a minus a a plus product 90 days later, then you can give us a call. And that's the thing. Put it on the customer, let them choose their path. Don't force them down anyway. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean, that's kind of like the, that's kind of like the foundation of, I'd say your, your sales process and going through like the triangle selling and learning all about that. It really, it was kind of nice because it's, from what I got from it, it's way less like force somebody into this situation versus, give them the choice. Yeah. And uh, it was kind of surprising for me, especially as a, a non-sales person to be in a sales role, to take that kind of approach and have some of these things work. Uh, I, I got to say, I was surprised. I was like, I don't think this is going to work. And then I tried it and I'm like, God damn it, dude, that, that totally works. Yeah. <laughs> it's shocking that middle-aged adults don't want to be forced to do something by somebody they've never met before. Huh? Who'd know? America. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but um so yeah, so how, you said you've done this a hundred times. So how long has closed loop been around? And then how did this actually come about? Did you set out to have a business or did this come from you did something at another company and the opportunity just kind of opened up? Like how did this come about? Yeah, so I was head of sales at three small startups. Nah, not all of them were startups, three small companies. 
And what I found was that they all had the same problems when I arrived. I had to do the same things to get them to where they needed to be. And it just felt like a lot of work on your own, on an island. And there, there had to be an easy way. Because everything I was doing was around four major categories, strategy, system, staff, and skills. How do we get the right strategy for the sales organization? What market are we selling to? Who are we selling to in that market? What's the product? What's pricing? All, all of that strategy layer stuff. Systems, both business processes, as well as tools that support those. Staff, who the heck's on the team? What's the role? And then how do we get more of them when we need them? And then finally, skills on the execution side. What do we need to do? What do we need to equip the team with? And how do we coach that and ensure that folks are continuously building up in the current role? And then there's internal promotion paths. Otherwise, people are going to leave. So I figured there should be a way that that's way easier than one person in a whiteboard room trying to build it from scratch. And then I started talking to people at bigger companies. They're like, yeah, we just have this massive sales enablement team. And we do a little bit of stuff sometimes. And sometimes they adopt it. And sometimes they don't. That didn't seem so great. And a lot of times what we found is that folks were just taking a bunch of different things from different places and trying to mash them together. Frankenstein played a spaghetti style and it wasn't working. So Hillman had been my coach in a prior business. And we said, why don't we just start this thing? And so we can create a repeatable process type package that we can just deploy into organizations, either small chunks at a time or, or a bigger program and let them run it. And that's what we did. So when, so all right, couple things here because yeah. yes, as we at the last company, we definitely had those kind of take things from everywhere. Everybody's kind of doing their own individual approach. Um, try to bring the team together, doing all this different stuff. And uh, as you know, like you were working with Carl when you came on, Carl was you know one of the first times that we had a you know a sales leader that actually started really doing that in a way that helped our ground game. Yep. Um, and yeah, he, he kind of came into a situation like that where it was just a bunch of random things, random battle cards, things like this, that yes, it's great. But as a new salesperson or somebody that's, you know, just getting in the fight, it's good, but it, it ends up, you know, taking you down this kind of path of ending up getting in that tit for tat with the prospects and um, you know, you start battling with them instead of, you know, looking how you can guide them through. So um, yes, I have been uh, in that situation before, but you talk about starting with like a whiteboard. So when you did this initially, like how did you, how did you know to look at those, those initial things? And then how did you start building this, this out? Yeah, we had a vision for what the end product suite needed to be. And it's super robust. I think at this point, we have, I don't know, 110 products or so. And you can't get there overnight. Well, one of the things that we we do and we've done is advise startups on how to go from zero to one. And zero to one customers, zero to 100,000 sales, zero to a million sales. And you always just look at what's your next milestone? What's the minimum that you need to get there? And... How do you sell the pain and then deliver the product? So we just started selling the pain and finding companies that were struggling in certain areas that we knew that we could help with. And at that point, we didn't have anything that we could pull off the shelf. And we'd just go work with them. And we'd say, look, we, we can do this. We've done this before. We don't have a product off the shelf. So that was a lot of building things for them, building things with them in the conference room type activities one of the one of the best stories was we were working with a company that had nine nine people in the entire organization 
And they were trying to figure out, is our product sellable yet? They didn't know. They had one person that was kind of a salesperson, but not really, just business development. Anytime a nine-person company has somebody that's business development title, they're not doing anything productive, in my experience. <laughs> so we said, all right, here's what we're going to do. So let's see you. The only way to test this, see if it works, let's turn all of your engineers and product people into BDRs for a month. And they're going to make cold calls. They're going to send emails. They're going to have conversations with people. We'll equip with them with messaging. And let's see what happens. Well, it worked. And the engineers were able to get meetings for the CEO. They closed a couple deals. And we said, all right, let's bring in a real sales person who can be a player coach, kind of head of sales, et cetera. And he just started crushing and then scaled it up. So I just pulled it up on LinkedIn. That company has 134 employees right now. And what, what we did with them was say, okay, here's what you need today. Okay, now you're bringing in a person. Now you need this additional stuff. Oh, now he's bringing in some people. Now you need some additional you know, strategy system, staff, and skills. It all goes back to that. And then just deploying specifically what's needed as opposed to going in and trying to boil the ocean. I actually own boilocean.com, B-O-Y-L-E ocean. It's going to be my alter ego consulting firm. Because oh, it's not what people need. You know, they need, they need what can fix the pain they have today that gets them to the next milestone. And if you incrementally deploy that, then you're going to win. And maybe their later stage company has screwed a bunch of stuff up along the way and they need a bunch of stuff right now. That's fine too. Either works. So why, why do you think a company with nine people finds themselves in a spot where they don't even know if they have a viable product to sell. Like what is the mindset? What are some of the things that you've seen that get people down that path? And then what are some of the ways that you've been able to get them to think differently about being in that spot? Yeah. It's, it's typically technical founders that are focused on product development and it's not a bad thing because these people usually build awesome products as long as they're going down the right path. You want to get user feedback you want to build MVPs, ship them, iterate based on what, what actual buyers are saying. You want to get people to give you money because that validates that you're going on the right path. But sometimes that's not what happens. And these really smart geniuses build some really awesome stuff and they're unable to sell it because they don't know where to start. And that's, that's the idea. And so we want to give them something that's easy to learn, easy to do, and then easy to coach and, and accelerate along the way. And that's on the early stage side. But same thing applies for later stage companies where there's everybody's doing crazy stuff and they're all different. Well, that's impossible to coach. So getting the teams frameworks that are easy to learn, easy to do and easy to coach brings everybody together, gets them working in the same direction. It makes coaching, which is the most important activity in a sales work much easier to do. So some managers will actually do it because they avoid it because it's hard to make it easy and they'll do it. That's just bottom. It's human nature. This has nothing to do with sales. People do things that are easy to do. Period. Sure. Yeah. Sure. So if you when you were in that spot um of going into that team that's mostly technical people, definitely not salespeople. Um I mean I guess that's pretty good practice when you finally get to a team of actual salespeople to know if this stuff works. It's a kind of a nice proof of concept. But where did you where did you start with a team like that in order to figure out what they can do, building those frameworks for them. And then what have you done to kind of take that initial build and refine it? And how is it similar and how is it different to what you do today? Yeah. Well, the, the foundation of messaging is an exercise that you're familiar with where we go from what's the feature of the product? 
what are the benefits of the feature? And then ask the question, what pain would someone have to have today to care about that benefit? And by going through that exercise, you end up with pain points. And then you can extend that and say, okay, for each one of these pain points that we developed, which personas is it relevant to? Which market segments is it relevant to? What's the impact of solving it? And how well are we positioned to win against the competition if we solve that? Equipping them with that messaging, which comes out of a two to three hour workshop that we do with teams. Now they've got all their pain points that they know that they're looking for. Layer some conversational skills around how to ask those pain-based questions. You know, hey, Chris, we're working with other early stage founders who are concerned about revenue growth and they're struggling to maintain balance between product development and sales. It's not something you're worried about, is it? And so now I'm asking pain-based questions that can get folks to opt into things that exist or not today. Because I'm not trying to convince you of a problem. I'm just trying to help you uncover a problem that I might be able to help with. And then we can put you further down the sales process if that's the case. And it's very simple. Again, it's just easy to learn, easy to do, easy to coach. If that's the case, people will do it. Otherwise, we're just overcomplicating things with complex diagrams and math formulas and trying to convince people that sales is science, not science. It's a craft. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. We're not doing square roots and binomial trees. Yeah. Well, and plus it's, so what's your thought on some of these things of, you know, like hitting certain numbers and, you know, certain activity and certain output and things like that. Uh, there are a lot of different views on this and philosophies. I mean, what, what are your thoughts around things like that? Yeah. So salespeople can only control two things. They can control their quality of activity and the quantity of activity. And so my, the way I look at it is you want to optimize for quantity above a certain level of quality. So it has to be of a certain quality. And then from there, just step on the gas. And that could be one person doing the activity. It could be higher, 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 scale, 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 as long as you're seeing results on the back end. But you can't tell somebody, hey, Chris, I want you to close more deals. That's not good coaching because then Chris has to go back and try to figure out what that means. The coaching conversation should be around things that the salesperson can control, which are only the quantity of activity and the quality of activity. And if we coach to those and we're smart about identifying where challenges are today and then helping people figure out how to address those challenges, then everybody's incrementally gets better. Results come, process drives outcome. Yep. Agreed. And it was funny uh, hearing you say that uh, that pain point line because uh, I've, I've deployed that one myself a couple of times. Uh, and that was one of those lines that uh, when you hear the response, you're kind of surprised that it works the first time at least yeah what's your react what's the general reaction when you come into places and teach people these different frameworks and things like what kind of resistance do you get and then how do you how do you get a team to get past that and and start to implement some of this stuff yeah the, the key is bridging the gap between knowing and doing because if we all did what we knew we'd be skinny rich and happy and you've got to get them to do this stuff and, and so a lot of, a lot of traditional training fails because, Hey, you hire, and unfortunately people still sell this model. You know, you go, you go hire a, a sales trainer, they come in, they teach your team a bunch of content and then they leave and nothing changes. And that's what we call that entertainment, you know, one day session or three, one hour sessions with so-and-so. And then, you know, we've done this with so many companies and here you go and nobody changes. That's not how adults learn. So what we do is we leverage a framework called Bloom's Taxonomy. And Bloom's Taxonomy is an adult learning framework. It's got six levels. We're only focused on the first four. First one is remember. Second one's understand. Third one's apply. Fourth one's analyze. 
So we leverage closed loop university to help people understand the content, content, learn the frameworks and all that type of stuff. So that covers the first two levels of blooms. And then you come into the session and we're focused on reinforcing that, applying it by doing role plays and then analyzing it by giving feedback to other folks. And then for the clients that are, that, that listen to us and buy call recording software, or at least just record their calls on, on zoom or whatever, and, and listen to them, then that continues ongoing. So managers can consistently coach individuals around the quantity and quality of activity, quality being the application of the frameworks in the calls that they listen to. And then you just keep getting better because you identify, Hey, what's Chris's biggest challenge this week? Cool. Let's coach him up on that. Boom. That's fixed. Let's go to the next one. Boom. That's fixed. Next thing you know, 52 weeks later, you're just an assassin that is crushing everything that you touch and you're not creating unforced errors. Yeah. And that feedback, that quick feedback loop is, is pretty critical because it lets you see some of those things that you consistently do some of the the swings that you take and you miss on, or some of the times when you think you're swinging and missing, but you didn't even like really pick up the bat. You kind of picked up the bat. Yeah. You didn't really go for it. Um, and having that was, uh, was pretty critical. And like, even like you were saying, if you can get your books and read that information, get that for yourself, but listen back to your sales calls and things like that. I mean that, and being honest with yourself about it too, that was, uh, that was a very painful eye opener. It's kind of like when I, uh, you know, write and make music and I listen back to my voice and I'm like, Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> Can't yeah. unleash this on the world. <laughs> No, it's, it's one of the best skills people can have is to be able to look themselves in the mirror and adjust. And if you can't do that, you're not going to get any better. So. Yeah. And it's a painful process, but it's, it's something that you've got to do. I, I had to go through that just as COVID happened. Um, you know, I wasn't really selling that great, you know, right before that, but I, you know, I was kind of making things happen, doing a lot of travel. Uh, and then March, 2020 hit and I only had one deal that closed because I happened to close it before the pandemic came. So, um, you know, yeah, that was a, that was a pretty rough time. And I even hired a sales coach at that time. He helped actually, he helped a tremendous amount, but the, I'd say one of the biggest pieces of that was because, uh, it forced me to really look at my process. Like he was asking me direct questions about my demo process. And like, you said this in your call, right? I'm like, yeah. He's like, why, why would you, why would you say that? Like, listen back to this. And I think even that was helpful before we got to working with you guys, because by that time, um, I, I was kind of able to see what you guys were doing and avoid some of that, uh, pitfall that I think a lot of salespeople that are struggling fall into of hoping that you're going to be the gospel and that you're going to uh, basically like deliver them from sin, whatever they're like, whatever the version of that is. Um, Cause really it's, it's just a useful framework to help you move forward. And um, I, what I got out of it was being able to just identify these different things that pop up in almost every conversation. Yeah. Um, yeah. And just following those frameworks and, and using like the, the resources and scan, all that kind of stuff was, was nice for me. Cause I already, you know, was coming to it with, with some sort of, uh, 
you know, past training, not hoping that you guys were going to sell for me. Um, I mean, do you see a decent amount of people that try to rely on you guys to sell for them? No, because I don't talk to prospects. <laughs> this is you. I can, you're the subject matter expert. We can equip you with frameworks that work and and then it's on you and then work with the managers to, to ensure that coaching is happening. And then, well, let's, let's throw out something. Some people that don't know what we're talking about here. And they might say, Oh, this is too abstract. So here's, here's one thing that can be helpful to everybody. As you're listening to your recording calls, just be ready to ask, why am I talking about the product right now? Because how often do you actually need to talk about the product, Chris? Not very often. Not, not until, very often. Not until you're pretty, pretty late in the game. Yeah, totally. So I, 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 that's one of the biggest mistakes. And again, without going into any of the things that, that we're talking about now, a simple takeaway for anybody is just ask, why are you talking about the product? You never need to talk about the product in a cold call. Very rarely need to talk about it on a discovery call. And even during the demo, talking about the product is often a trap for folks. And the best demos are using the product as a background to facilitate conversation, but it's not talking about, it does this, it does that, it does the other. It's talking about the solution to pain that's already been uncovered and then continuing to do more discovery for different stakeholders inside the business and then create velocity to close or disqualify as fast as you possibly can. Cause spending times with losers is not how you hit your goals. Agreed. Well said. <laughs> Yeah, I remember that one time I went uh I was trying to demo you and I started and you're just like, Hey, stop. Uh, that whole minute that you spent, you can sum that up in one question. Yeah. And uh that drastically changed how I, I ran things, but it it is it does take it from that prescribed nature of you know telling a 30, 40, in my case, you know, 50, 60 year old man what they should be doing and how they yeah. should feel about something. Uh, being a you know 27 28 year old um, it, it's not it's not the the best route yeah um, <laughs> no no and this is this is where things like challenger just completely fall down inside of organizations because oh, how so has its place definitely has its place if you've been in an industry you're an expert in the industry and you can credibly challenge somebody rock and roll do your thing super advanced concept for somebody that doesn't have the credibility to do that. And, and that's where uncovering pain and being able to demonstrate how we've sold that pain for other folks in the past, that gets you deals. You don't, you don't need to go in and have some bravado and discuss how you're going to revolutionize somebody's business and, and all and teach them a bunch of new things. It's, you can do that. But if you're running a team and you've got a bunch of people and you're trying to get everybody swimming in the same direction, rowing the boat in the same direction, what pains do you solve for who in which market segment equip them with the questions to go ask to uncover if they have that pain or not, and then be able to demonstrate how you solve that pain for other people like them decision. Yeah. There's some resistance that pops up along the way. Sure. Some other resources you need to uncover political resources, financial resources, technology integrations, things like that. But this is not rocket science and anybody trying to convince you it's rocket science is has ulterior motives. That's my opinion. Got it. Yeah. Got it. Agreed. Well, hey, man, if we can, uh, if we can switch gears a little bit, um, I do want to talk. I want to talk about where the where the transition happened from from doing this at other companies 
to actually starting this business? And then where is there like a specific moment that you can recall where you were, you were thinking like, Oh, I can do this. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the transition was, so I was head of sales at this company. Funny story. So I, my buddy went to college with the founder to law school with the founder. So I go work there. And when I, when I interviewed and everything, they had 12 logos on their site. I'm like, oh, those are good logos. This company seems to be going pretty far. Yeah, I crushed the interview. And well, I crushed, here's why I crushed the interview because I spent between my first and second interview, I spent three days, I spent an entire long weekend pretending like I had the job. And I put together all the things that I had done during my pretend I had the job, sent it to the founders in advance of my second interview, showed up and said, here's what I do in the first three days working here. I actually carved out three days and, and did this. And then they hired me because nobody else does that. So if you really want to get a job, do stuff like that. You should also read hiring, onboarding, and ramping salespeople. And so I got work there. And then the second week of work, they get a cease and desist letter from one of the law firms. And then they get two more because apparently none of those law firms were actually clients. They didn't have any clients. And <laughs> so <laughs> I didn't think to fact check their website, but I guess that's a smart thing to do if it's a series A company. Yeah, I worked there, sold a bunch of stuff. Got budget to hire sales team, hired sales team. And then one of my salespeople three weeks in said, I'm never going to be able to make it at this company. And I said, why? And then he made the astute observation. He said, well, they didn't name this guy, Chris. He said, well, Chris is a exact target user for us, right? And I said, yeah. He said, Chris went to law school at the founders of the company, right? I said, yeah. He said, Chris is your friend from back in the day, right? I said, yeah. Says Chris doesn't use our software. It's like ooh, touche, salesman. Good point. So, so at that point, I said, "All right, this ain't gonna work. I'm out." Because it's it's a product problem. I mean, product is funny. I worked there for a little over a year. Product got worse from my first day to my last day because they hired this cuckoo VP of engineering who was actually looking for an engineering manager job, and this dude just rewrote everything because this this is what people that are looking for job preservation do in the technology world. If you get somebody that comes in and wants to rewrite the product, that's just the biggest red flag in the world. They're just trying to pull a salary for a year. And then this guy, oh, this is funny. This guy pulled the biggest power move I've ever seen. So he got a puppy and then claimed that him and his wife needed to split puppy duty so he could only come in the office half time. <laughs> wow. Like, how do you fall for that? Did, so, he, did he get puppy permission? Yeah. Yeah, and then he he did he would do hilarious stuff. So this is he 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 would ship code at five a.m. and like brag about how early he was up, and then just not be in the office all day. So that was fun. Then this dude that he hired it was oh this was really funny too. So this dude that he hired turns out okay. So every Zoom call that this guy was on, he'd have his baby on his lap, and he had at least two full time jobs. We think he might have had three, and he would just tell all of his employers that he was just slammed with the baby so he couldn't make meetings, but he was actually working three jobs and turns out that or two jobs for sure, maybe three. And this wasn't the first person. I know two people that have done this. I don't know them. They're not my friends. I just, I've worked with companies that have hired these people. So anyways, that was hilarious. All right. So that then fast forward, I said, all right, what am I going to do next? I'm a big fan of quitting your job. If you just don't want to work there anymore. So I just bounced. I was like, all right, I'm out. And they said, will you stay till whatever day? And I said, sure. You know, it happened to be the Christmas party. So I was like, yeah, I like Christmas parties. Those are fun. So, so I was like, I stay till the Christmas party. 
And then I, I said, let's let's try to take this idea of a sales organization build and automate it with software. So I started working on that, got some people to write some code, hired some people, raised some money, you know, whatever. And then found that I'm not really good at managing engineers and building software products. Found that out after I lost everything. More to come on that in the future, but yeah, I got smoked on that deal financially. Yeah, what what do you so wait, so this was before closed loop? Yeah, yeah. You were yeah. trying to build some sort of like software system? Yeah, yeah. So we spun up a, an entity and and tried to build some software. That that didn't work. I, I got financially smoked on that deal, but that's fine. Good learning lesson. So somebody doesn't have a 401k anymore, but that's cool. <laughs> <laughs> That's a problem for old me to worry about. I ain't worried about it right now. Yeah. It's so funny because I'm sure so many people are squirming, right? They're like, oh my God, Corey put his 401k into a software company. Yep. Whole thing. Uh, I take <laughs> risks. I moved yeah. to Nashville on a whim. I don't yeah, care. Totally. So then, uh, and then we said, all right, this isn't going to work. One of the engineers quit. Then the other engineer quit. I was like, okay, well, nobody's writing code. And I sure as heck can't write code. I did get into four on the AP one computer science test though. So that's a fun fact. They hated that. Cause I'd be like, I'd be asking questions about architecture and throwing ERDs and talking about, I don't know, functions. Apparently functions are called methods now. So <laughs> who knew the world's moving on, the world's moving on. And so Hillman and I were talking about this. We said, well, we're trying to be cute and build a software company and charge $20 a month. And then we're giving away tens of thousands of dollars of free consulting services to make the software work. So we shut down the software business and started this consulting business. And then we said, let's, let's just go out and, and deliver things that we can deliver. I don't know, four months into that, we landed a nice size global contract with a small public company and just kept building from there. Hell yeah. So basically like uh, almost like an enabling contract. Yeah. 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 Totally. Well, that's the thing, man. And then you just build as, as people need things. So, Hey guys, can you help us hire? Some people, yeah, sure. So let's write job descriptions for AECS and SDR. Cool. Now I've got those things on the shelf that I can pull off anytime anybody else wants it. Somebody's wanted to on. Oh, this was funny. So one company was struggling with onboarding. And they said, well, we're concerned people aren't ramping fast enough. And we're anxious that internal promotions are failing. I was like, cool. So I can help you guys put together an onboarding program. They said, how much is that going to cost? I don't know. I might have said something like 35 grand. I don't remember what the price was. It was something like that. And, and they said, Oh, we can't do that. Can you do it for 15? It's like, no. I said, okay, cool. Thanks. So then I was pissed because I don't like losing, but I also don't, don't discount. So these things, you know, <laughs> they're diametrically opposed to each other. So, so I, so I go sit at home and I, I, I call home and I say, Hey, I just DQ this deal because they wouldn't pay the piper. I'm going to go write a book on it. <laughs> so I took what I would have done for these guys. And I guess I could have taken the 15K and just called it R&D, but I don't discount. So we didn't do that. And so, we, so I, just wrote the, I just wrote the outline for the book that became hiring onboarding and ramping salespeople. I was focused on the onboarding and ramping. And Hillman already had uh, a lot of uh, frameworks around the hiring piece. And then that's how that book came to be because some, some guy was being cheap and guess who still doesn't have an onboarding program. That guy, that guy, well, he left. It's another guy. I guess I should hit him back up and be like, Hey, that other guy name withheld 
decided this wasn't important, are you concerned that people aren't ramping fast enough and anxious that internal promotions are failing? That's not something you're dealing with, is it? Boom. Let's ask. Yeah, actually, I'll do that. Yeah, let's let's sell some stuff. See, Chris is great. He's, he's a sales enabler over here. He's reminding yeah. me of things that actually go prospect. Yeah, this is a sales enablement podcast, <laughs> uh, but I'm uh, taking more of the traditional approach where I'm just going to tell you things and then I will end this recording and uh, not help you any further than that. That's hilarious. Well, yeah, and that's one of the things that is is challenging with being a business owner is you've got to build product, you've got to sell stuff, you've got to deliver it, and then you got to deal with the admin BS that comes with business ownership. So you're not always focused on, oh yeah, I lost that deal a year ago. Let's, but I have two salespeople now full time. I'll just give it to one of them. They can get a commission. I don't care. I love paying commission. It means I made yeah. money. It's ultimate testament to what you do. Yeah, yeah it's totally. kinda it's kind of cool. It's uh it's flipping the script on what you always would look for is getting your commission payments and now being able to pay that out to somebody else. That's kind of cool. Yeah, totally. Hell yeah. That's great. It's like, oh, you got a lot, you made a lot of money. That means we all made a lot of money. Let's roll. Yeah, and I pay them a lot. I also pay them on lifetime value because I think that's the that's the thing that people get jerked around on in software companies is they get paid on the first deal. And then well, if let's say, let's say that a software company's exit multiple is 10x revenue. So if they're doing hundred million in revenue, there's a billion dollar company. Yeah, that's for a more mature company. These days, it might be 20 or 30x for some of the faster growing ones, but let's just use that number, for example. Sure. Well, if, if there's a 10x exit multiple on revenue, that means if little Tommy sells a $10,000 deal, he created $100,000 in value for the company on that 10x multiple. And a lot of times, you know, he'll get like 10% commission. So he gets $1,000 in commission for creating $100,000 of enterprise value. So I... I pay lifetime value commissions to our salespeople and then it's pretty funny. That's, okay. So how do you do that and, and do that like, and make that work financially as much as you can kind of disclose on here, but like, how do you, how do you make that work? What is that like? Yeah. It's, you just manage your cost structure and you, here, here's the thing. If you don't pay on that, then who's, who's responsible for renewals and upsells and things like that. Then you hire another person, pay them base salary, and now you got two people managing the same deal instead of one. And I think that a single point of contact is is more valuable. You can build a relationship. I always say that in sales, you don't need a relationship; you need a rapport. But if you're managing a deal with somebody for three or four years, yeah, you'll you'll develop a relationship, and that's good. Yeah. Why is rapport more important than a relationship? Is a rapport leads to trust, and that's all you need. You need to find somebody who has pain. You need to find somebody who trusts that you can solve that pain for them. And that's it. You know, you don't need to be invited to their softball game. You don't yeah. need to go to their wedding. You just you just need them to think that you have at least their interest in mind or that you're not trying to do something sleazy. And then you can win deals. Yeah. That's that's an interesting take on on paying people that lifetime value because that is that is something that you do see at a lot of companies when you get paid on that initial deal is kind of slinging bullshit through the pipeline um, for the sake of closing the deals. Um, and, you know, one thing that we we used to do at Flight Docs that I think was good and it makes it slightly more painful as a salesperson, but you don't get paid until, uh, you don't get paid commission until that uh, invoice gets paid by the customer. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because, I think that's smart. We, we do that too. Yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, I've had, I've had, 
60, $30,000, $60,000 deals close and it's like all great. And then it gets held up in a back end process two months after signing. You find out that this person can only do a tier 43-T12 security encryption and you only have T-41.136. And yeah. sorry, we can't do business. And uh, that always sucks. Well, I don't get paid late. Nobody pays me late. You know why? Why? Because I, I put a line item in my contracts that says late payments are due to, or late payments are subject to a $250 per day late fee. And accounts payable and finance folks get smoked if they pay late fees. Really? So I send over one message and say, hey, just a reminder, it has a $250 late fee. I'm waving it up to tomorrow. I've got paid. I've never got paid late. Nobody pays me late. It's it's awesome. And so, yeah. you know what? some people are scared about it, so they pay me early. Like I just sent an invoice out yesterday for uh, 25k for a part of a project, and they just they already paid this morning. I was like, oh, cool, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> All right, dude. I'm writing this down. Yeah, don't. You're not a bank, man. Yeah. Hey, everybody. Guess what? Small business owners, we're not banks. So. If you agree to pay during a certain period of time, that's cool. I'll give you seven. I'll give you net seven. I'll give you net 14. I'll give you net 30. I don't care. I don't, I, frankly, booked revenue to me is booked revenue. I'm from, I always spent my, my growing up years in Kansas and Texas. And I believe that a handshake in somebody's word is worth a lot. And I don't think people are there jerky around. But at the same time, I know the person that signs my contracts, not the person that initiates the ACH transfer. So I'm not going to tell you, you have to pay in advance. Sure. I never do that. You know, some, some consulting firms are like, oh, we won't start the project until we receive down payment. Whatever. That's the, the person I'm working with is not the one that's sending the ACH. So why hold up the project for semantics? I, I just trust that people are going to pay me. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's part of the sales process too of, of going through this stuff. If you vet it out properly and you kind of disqualify where you need to and you make sure that what you're about to do for them is actually what they need to do, you're probably going to eliminate that potential situation maybe nine times out of ten maybe more yeah for sure yeah that's it yeah so all right so let's do another let's do another little shift here uh i know we're kind of coming up towards uh, the end of our time here so i want to be respectful of that but yeah, i got a hard step i gotta go sell some stuff here in a second all right hell yeah <laughs> so um i want to talk about 212 angel so yeah. what what is that? And yeah, what is that? <laughs> yeah, it's an angel investment fund that is started by a couple guys. One of them I've been friends with for six or seven years. And what what their vision is, is to invest in seed stage deals and be the most valuable investor on their cap table. And the way that they do this is push value towards the organizations they invest in. I think one of the one of the challenges with the investment community and founders is that everybody says, oh, we're more than money. And funds say that they're more than money. And the way that they position that is either, hey, we can help introduce you to talent or we can help introduce you to customers. And the founders that we talk to have consistently been burned by that. Yeah, they never really helped. They they flipped over a couple of people they knew that were looking for jobs. They got us in front of a couple of customers, but it wasn't the right ones. It wasn't the right timing. So it never went anywhere. Well, with this, each company that gets invested in gets access to an executive CEO coach. They get full access to Closed Loop, Closed Loop University. We have office hours with the with the 
portfolio. They can schedule one-on-ones with us. And the, the goal on our end, Hillman and I, is to mitigate sales execution risk. When you're a startup, when you're a seed stage company, you've got market risk and you've got technical risk and you've got sales execution risk. Those are kind of the three three big buckets that we look at. So market risk is, is there an appetite for this? Can I get to where I have product market fit? Technical risk is, will this thing physically work? Is, is every, you know, is it, remember Netflix started as mailing CDs to people because they were betting that Moore's law was going to continue to progress where the compute power was it compute power doubles every two years or every 18 months or something like that. And they said, eventually video streaming is going to be a thing. So let's get our infrastructure all set up. So when it is, we can flip the switch and just put blockbuster out of business, which they did. So that's on the technical risk side. And then on sales execution risk, all these folks have never sold before. I love working with technical founders. We got one and I can't remember. She either went to Harvard or MIT and has an engineering degree. Hellman told me the other day, she executes triangle selling better than anyone that he's ever seen. And, she, and this was three weeks after she learned it for the first time. Because it's a system and people that are systems thinkers that are really, really, really smart and are completely focused on making it work, just crush. It's fascinating. So equipping them, those early stage founders with the sales frameworks and skills that they need to push forward. And then also on the, you know, we, we talk, talk about skills. The other three S's that we, that we frequently focus on, strategy, systems, and staff, we help them on those fronts too. So they get all access. Once they raise a series A, they, get, they have to start paying us. But up until then, our, our agreement, our um, partnership with 212 covers that for, for founders. So any early stage technical founders that are trying to really figure out sales, if we invest, then they get that package for free, which is, which is pretty cool. Hell yeah, dude. That's a critical piece of this, especially as I'm starting out my own business is, is kind of a reminder of I have to get back into that salesperson mindset. And I've been out of it for about five months now. And it's uh, I'm glad we had this conversation because it's it's reminding me, okay, I got to get back into that mindset of what my processes were, how I had this like fundamentally set up. And uh, you need to get a copy of this. Sales. Oh, you mean the sales playbooks, the builder's toolkit by Corey Brick? <laughs> Send me your address. We'll get you one. Hell yeah, dude. Yeah. Hell yeah. That's great. Yeah. Cause that's it, man. And that's what I was talking about a little bit ago as, as a founder, you've got so many things going on in sales. Even if you're a sales focused founder, it's still only 50% of your time. Maybe there's just other things you have to do. And it's, it's a beautiful thing once you can get those first salespeople hired, but you can't justify it until you've actually been able to do it yourself. You can't outsource sales. It doesn't work. No, I'm, I'm realizing you can't really outsource almost, almost anything that you want to get done, you know, to start. Uh, I, I'm, I'm in this spot of like, I just almost can't do it. I need to know how to do it, even if it's rudimentary and then, then focus on scaling. But yeah. Well, yeah, and the good news is all those dorks on the internet that tell you if you work more than 40 hours a week, you burn out, have never been a founder before. Because what they don't realize is that one, you can't do that. Otherwise you're just done. But the yeah. second thing is you don't get burnout from working more than 40 hours a week. You get burnout from doing the same stuff that you don't like for more than 40 hours a week. So as a founder, you've got lots of, oh, okay, I'm going to go work on product for a little bit. I'm going to work on ops. going to go to happy hour. I'll come back home and do admin. <laughs> you know, woohoo. Oh, and by the way, while I'm at happy hour, I'm doing sales. And, and that's the idea. If you can chunk up your day and really leverage some time management principles, sleep in on Saturday till noon, like I like to, you know, wake up, clear your inbox, 
crank out some new product stuff and then, and then do whatever you want to do. And Sunday night prep, you can, you can comfortably work 60 hour weeks without it feeling any different than working a 30 hour week at something that you don't really enjoy. Agreed. Agreed. There's 168 hours in a week, by the way, for those keeping track of, for those keeping score at home, there's 168 (laughs) hours a week. (laughs) Well said, sir. Well, Hey man, I, uh, I want to let you get back to, uh, making some money and, uh, making some sales. So dude, thank you for coming on and doing this. I I really appreciate it. This was, this was great. And, uh, I'm, I'm taking this as a little bit, uh, you know, selfish win for me that, uh, just a reminder that I need to get back on my sales game. I will definitely accept your gift of your book. Uh, I got to go back to my notes that I took. Uh, closing in on a year ago when uh, yeah. we started this journey together, but yeah, thanks man for doing this. And so, uh, just as we're wrapping up, what, uh, where can people find you? Where do you want people to check you out? I'm on LinkedIn. I don't know what my, I think my URL is something sassy, like slash buy triangle selling. But if you just type my name in C O R Y B R A Y, I'm on there. Yeah, you've got a you've got a very entertaining LinkedIn. I I like going on there. It's uh. Y- you like poking the bears. I oh yeah. Well, I, I like, can. I like saying things that other people won't say because I don't have a board or a boss or a wife to tell me that I'm not allowed to do things. I'm like, I just do whatever I want. <laughs> Hell yeah, brother. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> Hell yeah, dude. Well, Corey, thanks for doing this, man. I appreciate yeah. it. Thanks Chris. Great seeing you. Great catching up. All right. You too. All right. Thank you for listening everybody.